Oh yes, Larry Boiter here and you are listening to Fixate on Code, the weekly bite-sized podcast where I talk to the best devs about their favorite strategies for writing great code. Now, let's chat with today's featured guest, John Alsop. John, thanks for joining me today. Oh, you're most welcome, Larry. John has been building for the web since the early 90s with his timeless article, The Tao of Web Design, his book, Developing with Web Standards, and as co-founder of the Web Directions Conference Series, John has made a massive impact on the lives of designers and developers the world over. John, can you fill in some of the gaps in that intro and tell me a little bit about what you get up to when you're not writing code? Yeah, it's a hard one. I mean, <laughs> they just covered about 25 years of my life. <laughs> and happily or sadly, it may maybe pretty much covered it all. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I came to the web uh, differently to a lot of people, actually from a computer science and software engineering background, um, unlike, uh, ironically, a lot of people on the web, and we're revisiting that question these days. That's what I studied in the univer- at university in the, in the 90s, in the 80s. Uh, and I, I developed a, a kind of hypertext knowledge management system in the early 90s, and when I thought about how I was going to distribute this, uh, the web was quite nascent. It was like 93, and I was thinking to myself, you know, we, we could sell this on the internet. Um, because at the time, if you wrote software, it was a bit like the music industry. You, you got a publishing deal, and the publisher basically gave you a small royalty, and, and you wrote the software, and they looked after everything else, and your destiny was in their hands. So we adopted the web very early. Uh, and at the time, to be quite honest, um, I thought the web was a very... I didn't. I think it was a bit of a fad, <laughs> in the sense that yeah, like so, the web is hypertext, right? And I was writing a hypertext system, and it's something the whole area is something I've been very interested in for a number of years. Uh, and and most experts in the field of hypertext at the time looked down on the web as being very you know lightweight, uh, really not real hypertext. Uh, and in fact, so in, in 1991, the year that Tim Berners Lee kind of launched. Uh, the web on the world, there was a big conference called Hypertext 91. It was the big Hypertext conference. And you've got to keep in mind, there wasn't just research around Hypertext at the time. There was, there was actually a lot of commercial applications available from all the big names. It was a big field already. And Tim Berners-Lee proposed a paper about the World Wide Web, and it was rejected. Wow. <laughs> so the whole, the, the whole research in the Hypertext community at the time thought there wasn't anything. And there's a whole list of reasons why uh, people rejected this. I've written about this quite extensively and spoken a bit as well. But, but interestingly, the very things that people criticize the web for, things like, you know, links were very were one directional, not bi-directional. They weren't typed. Yeah. You know, so you wouldn't say this link to this is a is a reference or an annotation or a citation, which is the, a pointer in the direction. There was no centralized kind of hub that allowed you to see the connections between documents. Mm. All of those things were considered state of the art for hypertext. And the web came along and did none of those, right? Mm. Uh, and very importantly, uh, even one of the criticisms was that, well, there was no business model, right? It was just free and people were, yeah, were giving it away. So it turns out, funnily enough, that all the things that people saw as being a weakness of the web yeah. really were its strength and allowed it to propagate and get in the hands of people who weren't software engineers and programmers and, and, and kind of take over the computing landscape by accident in many respects. But, uh, you know... So that, that was the beginning, and, and, and I quickly worked out, actually, you know what, there's something to this web thing, and I kind of developed courses, and, and, and then I saw, especially when CSS came along, I, I really saw that there weren't any good tools around that, so I developed CSS tools that I developed for many years, um, 
And around that, then realize that the way to get people to know that you've got CSS tools is to develop, develop kind of training and mm. materials. And we did one of the very original kind of bug features of, of, of CSS, not unlike can I use today, mm. right? So this is going back into the mid-90s. Uh, so essentially, I kind of slowly migrated from being this very traditional, in many respects, software engineer who wrote you know code that ran on Mac and Windows to being a, a person who really came to see the value and the power of the web. And I've spent, I guess, the last 20 years or so focused on on that. In more recent years, I guess, you know, this is all about programming and developing. And, and, and I do a bit of that still, but it's not like I used to do that all the time. And I, that's a great love of mine. But increasingly, I guess what I do is I help amplify the voices and ideas of other people through our conferences, uh, you know, through, you know, finding channels for people to, to get on stage or uh, develop their skills to publish them and so on. So increasingly, that's my role, I guess. Uh, and I still try to keep up with technology, but I certainly don't write a lot of production code every day anymore, sadly. So, John, what are you most passionate about as a developer? Yeah, so there's so much <laughs> in that question, right? So um, I, I, I guess whether or not it's what I'm most passionate about, most interested in. So I have this idea that I, I, I call it, like, I think we've been in this era of computing for the last 40 years, since the mid-70s. You might call it personal computing. Mm. And it sort of started with things like the Apple One and these very early personal computers, the, the Sinclair and, and so on. And, and while you might think the era of a kind of iPad or Android, top of the range, Android or iPhone device is, is profoundly different from that era, there are a lot of really strong similarities you know, of, of what computing is. So the way we interact with these devices, I think, is particularly interesting. The similarities. So there, are, our interactions are largely text-based. Mm-hmm. Like even though you know we've been you know in the intervening years we've moved to GUIs and then the, the touch-based interface, but we still mostly look at text on a screen and we read it and write it. We directly manipulate objects on a screen. Uh, you know, we touch a thing, a button, or so on. Um, and, and, and most importantly, I guess, we use our kind of uh, prefrontal cortex and we use our visual cortex. It's all using that part of our brain to interact. We also kind of have this very app-centric model abstraction in our head of, of what a computer is. It's a bunch of apps uh, and we go to this app for this feature and we go to that app to do this task. Yeah. And all of those, I guess, are legacies of, of the last 40 years. I, what I'm really interested in and excited about are what I see is those breaking down that paradigm of computing changing. And in the same way that mini computing and mainframe computing prior to those didn't go away. I mean, people, you know, large organizations still spent lots of money on mainframes and lots of money on mini computers. People still programming COBOL, right? Mm. It's, it, it, this whole paradigm is not going to go away. Yeah. But what I think we will do is it, it, we will usher in a new paradigm of computing that I think will, will depend less and less on uh, text and reading and writing. And, mm-hmm. and, and I guess less and less on intentionality. Like, I think it's got to be less about having a thought and directly manipulating a computer. Because let's say the computer's pretty dumb, right? They sit yeah. there and they wait for us to tap or type or, or, or click, right? They don't do anything for us. And, and, and yet they have so much power, there's so much capability. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to me, there's something. And, and then around that, this idea of a monolithic application that does kind of one app does everything, mm-hmm. right, for us. Um, and, and it's very much a silo of functionality, right? My photos are over here and I take them with a camera and then it's a devil of a time to get them over here to manipulate them in some, you know, pixel mater or, or, or whatever tool I use. And then like we have these, these very disjointed sets of functionality that are actually quite monolithic. Mm. Whereas Unix had that kind of idea of, of, of piping together these very small pieces of functionality, right? So, so I think what excites me and what, what, what I'm really interested in is to see it, 
oh, I hope, a, a transition toward a, a different paradigm of, of much less app-centric, monolithic mm. uh, computer functionality and much less intentional interaction with computers, much more kind of contextual, you know, in a sense, computing becoming a kind of augmentation of our existence. Like, you know, I've got this ear pod in my ear and, you know, you can only imagine Moore's Law a couple of generations means this is very, very small or, you know, cochlear implants. We've already got people, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of a year getting cochlear implants implanted. You know, uh, when, when we have got this constant interaction with a computer that can, you know, use a microphone to pick up everything around us, it can be recording everything we talk about and analyzing it, maybe feeding information mm. back to us. So, you know, John, are you feeling all right today? I, Picking up the patterns that might, you know, indicate that I, you know, I, you know, if I, you know, struggle with depression, that, that maybe an episode is coming on I haven't even realised yet. Look, there are obviously a lot of concerns about the idea of computers just listening to us all the time and recording everything we do. Yeah. But, but I, I think there's something, another level of computing there that will take, you know, will take computing into more and more parts of our life. And I think mm. we'll, we'll meet us. Uh, and, and to me, that's very interesting. And, and I guess the other part of that is, you know, the, the technologies we need for this, they're all here and they're not hard to use. If you if you can program with JavaScript and you can use a web API, well, you can tap into these AI APIs at Amazon Web Services or Watson or Google Cloud Platform. You know, you can, you can tap into the microphone. Like right now, the idea that we all of this interaction between you and I on the other sides of the world go directly through a web browser with no need to configure any sort of network between us. So I just... Visit a URL on the web browser, and now this is this is this magic sound going between the two of us, literally halfway around the world, and being recorded by a server somewhere else. You know, I think I think the, the capabilities of this generation of computing are all there. It's up to us now to imagine what it might be like, and, and really to start building. Yeah, and people have been talking about AI for what thirty or forty years now, and within the last ten or so years, it's become reality, and it's pervasive without us even realizing it. And now companies like Google and, uh, well, I suppose Google's making the biggest noise at the moment about quantum computing and the capabilities that's going to have. It's going to be an incredible world. And, and it's interesting to imagine that our direct interaction is actually being decreased while the benefits are going to be massively increased. So that's a, that's a really interesting perspective. Now, John, can you tell me about the worst experience you've ever had on a project? Look, I'm probably quite fortunate. I mean, the one I thought about this, and the sort of thing I've thought about uh, is people just not paying their bills. I think, <laughs> you know, you know, one time that was that I remember one particular time that really, you know, there was a lot of money and it made a real difference to my life for a bit. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe that's when I finally stopped doing any sort of client work. Mm. You know, I'm just trying to think back to when I did a lot of development. You know, you threw out a bunch of code and took days to recreate or really pernicious bugs that you sort of took forever to chase down. And when you did, you, yeah, well, I remember one time it was a setting that I changed in some, in a compiler, like months, if not years before. And, and, and I just, I ran into this brick wall and I just, I, I just, I just thought at this point, this whole code base is wrong. I don't know where to start. <laughs> I've looked at everything. It was working fine in the kind of developer tools, but as soon as I compiled and ran it, and, and compile times were like hours, you know, I build overnight. Yeah. And you're like, you know, literally every time you couldn't spot the error. And you thought, <laughs> oh, you know, you, you build it overnight, get up the next morning. And, and then for some reason, this idea, ah, oh, some, there's something, I think it was in the, in the, in the system. In, in, so in the Mac, when you used to program the Mac before Mac OS X, you would have these resources, right, where you'd have all your icons and your strings. And you'd also set things like flags for how memory was allocated and deallocated, like blocks of memory. And I must have set something months before. It all worked for months and months and it stopped happening. And, and I, you know, that's the one that comes to mind. I guess, you know, I spent several <laughs> days 
And I really got to the point, I thought, this is this whole co-base is somehow ruined <laughs> and I have no idea how to fix it. I'm sure we all have experiences like that. What was your biggest takeaway from, from having gone through that? Yeah, um, I think it was more than anything that, that, that debugging is a kind of, is a black art, um, <laughs> you know, and I debugged a lot by that time. But, you know, we sort of, you, you would have these strategies, you have these strategies of debugging, you know, be, you know, a binary tree effectively, well, I look at this half the code base and if it works, then it must be the other half. There's a point you get to where you run out all your tricks and it's just something strange up in the back of your mind uh, about, you know, what you might have done and, and so on. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> Connecting the dots. Yes, it is. And, you know, that, that's the sort of thing, I guess, you know, we as developers, we kind of, we, we bury away all the work that we've done uh, on a project. And, mm. you know, there's that time where, you know, something tweaks in you. Oh, that's right. Remember that thing over here? <laughs> anyway, I think we've all had that experience. There you go. That was the best I could come up with. I guess that's good, really. It wasn't like something blew up or somebody sent an accidental alert about missiles incoming <laughs> or something. You know, there are far worse things could happen, right? How many times does a does a semicolon throw you off for hours and, and it turns out to be the biggest problem? <laughs> well, I remember when I was doing computer science in the 80s and we studied Fortran. Uh, which most people probably never heard of, but it was um, it was uh, at the time, or certainly when it was invented some decades before, it had been quite a high level language. But it, the story, the, the, whether or not apocryphal story, was that one of the early Mercury pre-manned missions kind of blew up or something terrible happened, and it was because of a semicolon as opposed to a colon that was used <laughs> in the language, and, and one of them was a terminator, and one of them was a you know, looping enumerator or something. I can't exactly remember, but. Um, and yet we still seem to produce languages that are very similar in lots of ways to those languages. So, you know, they're based it syntactically and so on in a lot of ways on, on those languages from like Algol and so on from you know, 50 or 60 mm. years ago. All right, John. Now, in terms of getting quality work done on a daily basis, which method or tool do you use that you'd hate to be without? Ah, uh, um, I am, and I don't do this all the time, right? But I do find when I make a list of things that I have to do, and I kind of like start the day by sitting down and look at, you know, what are the things I have to do today and work out a flow that maybe, even if I allocate, well, this is not that important. I'll do it right now to get a couple out of the way. And this one here, like, uh, it's a bit of a pain, but I'll do it over lunch because I don't really, but these ones are really important. So, so I try to allocate the tasks that I have so that I kind of maximize for my, you know, I know that I'm more productive at certain times of day than others. And I know at certain times of day, it's nice just to tick a few things off the box. So I find in some ways, you know, some approach, and I've tried all the various formal getting things done mm. and all these different techniques, but I, 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 you know, and I think they all have their merits, but I, what I find now is I just sort of, today I'm going to do this and, and, and it's okay if I don't do all these things unless there's a, you know, there's something that has to be done. And then tomorrow I'll pretty much start by saying, right, okay, what didn't I do yesterday? Line them up and get the other things. And I find that kind of keeps me really honest. And at the end of the day, you can look back and think, what did I do today? Right. There's a kind of, you know, that whole thing, people who show gratitude tend to be happier. Right. So often they kind of, there's this meditative practice or mindfulness practice where at the end of the day, you can think of, often they say three, but I think one thing you're grateful for today, you're thankful that happened. And this is what I try to do at dinner time, right? Mm. You sit down with the kids, okay, tell me something you're grateful for today. So it just becomes this ritual, just one thing. Mm. So at the end of the day, you can kind of have this thing where you look back and I'm literally looking at the paper now and I'm seeing this line through, there was like 25 items and I've got through about 20 of them and lines through them and it gives me a sense of accomplishment mm. and, and progression. And there are certainly better some days where we really need that more than others. So it, it helps in two ways. It helps me kind of, I think, use my time best. It helps me think in advance about what I'm going to do with my time mm -hmm. today. And at the end of the day, it gives me that benefit of, of looking back and thinking, no, I, I got some things done, right? Like I didn't just, 
you know, because those days where you feel like, God, I've been running around since 7.30 this morning. I don't feel mm. I've done anything, right? Yeah. What did I do? Well, I can literally glance down and see all the things. And, oh, my God, I've got to do that blog post tomorrow <laughs> so, as well. So that's the first thing tomorrow, doing a blog post. So where in your daily work do you still get frustrated and where do you feel there's room for things to be done in a more effective way? Everywhere. For <laughs> 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 both of those. <laughs> um, so one, one thing has sort of happened in my life, right? So, so, so as a developer for many years, I wrote the software, you know, there's, there's a couple of us really. I wrote the software, we did a lot, all the marketing and the documentation and all everything around it together. And, in, and you know, about well, even 15 years ago, or certainly 13 or 14 years ago, that transition from being what I did primarily to increasingly running events, mm. uh, it took me a long time to sort of really identify as someone who ran events. Like, this is what I did, right? Mm. And so when I shifted from, well, I write code and then organize the events on the side. So, you know, I, like the code stuff's great, but the primary thing that I need to focus on it because it generates the revenue and everything is, yeah. is these events. So I guess for me... I spent like 15 to 20 professional years developing kind of knowledge in a number of languages and tool sets and platforms and frameworks mm-hmm. and get really good at those. Uh, and then, and then in a way, had to start all over again. And I still feel like having devoted an awful lot of time, you know, like probably the last decade, really most of my time to running these events, I still only feel like I'm beginning to understand the whole of the business yeah. uh, and, and the areas where I can improve. And so, you know, my frustration, I guess, is because I had a lot of competence in one area, you just naturally, like, I just think it's a human thing, right? You just, well, I'm yeah. competent, right? And so I don't, I, I guess what frustrates me is I, I maybe don't stop. But you know what? Maybe it's a better way of doing this. And maybe I could go and do some research because I'm sure someone solved this problem before, right? So something I have no problem doing when I'm programming. Like recently, I, I built something um, that was relatively sophisticated using the audio API and then some a whole bunch of stuff. Really, you know, it was an interesting project. So all this technology I knew really well. I found myself Googling everything, right? And yet someone who, you know, has developed professionally for 20 plus years, I didn't feel any shame or, you know, that was in no way problematic for me to do that. And yet I don't translate that into the way I kind of run my business and think about cash flow and think about marketing strategies. It, 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 <laughs> I don't know what that's about. And maybe this is a wake-up call. But um, yeah, so what I need to, I guess, do is, is find two or three of these real pain points and, and use an approach that I would unhesitatingly use if I was starting a new programming language or framework or something like that. So John, in terms of new projects, libraries, or frameworks, what are you most excited about? Do you, do you have an opportunity to work with new libraries with all the conference organizing that you do? Um, no. I mean, I, when I come to build things, I generally rely on what I know really well already. And usually it's, it's a bit of a proof of concept to get someone else, maybe you just say, hey, we've got this thing. Do you want to finish this and, and build it out? But so, so to translate into what I do... Recently, and this maybe I'm a terrible sellout at this point, but <laughs> we've had this disparate. We have this database of all these people who have attended our conference, like thousands of people over here. And then we were doing email campaigns through this particular tool, and we've been doing that for years. And and recently, and and we've been exploring these different tool sets, bringing all these together, and being able to kind of see, you know, if we send this campaign out, who's responded, where are they coming, all that kind of programmatic stuff that anybody's been doing this stuff for a while knows backwards, right? Mm. And we've had a couple of goes at it and it hasn't quite stuck. And in recent weeks, it really has. And it's been, so it's actually genuinely exciting me to think, okay, now that we have more insight into our customers, how can we use that to, to I mean, I, I'm very customer focused. Like I, I feel it's not about how can we trick them into doing something we want them to do, but rather how can we use these insights? So what are they following? You know, when we do our newsletter, what links are they following? Right. And does, how can that help us, you know, 
travel in that direction. So I guess it's it's an analytical approach yeah. to a, a very different sort of problem. But it's really, it's really. I guess it's an example of what you know, what frustrations and, and, and efficiencies are there that I, I could have. But I guess it's an example of that. But it's also, I guess, you know, it speaks to that kind of you know, bringing a mindset from one area that I have expertise and trying to apply it in other areas. It's just it's taking me far too long to do it. But yes, I'm genuinely excited about how I can get better insights into you know our customers to to sort of tailor things better, you know, for them, training and, and other resources that we develop. Now, John, which specific aspects about programming has dramatically changed the way that you think about and write code? Yeah, so I started programming like a lot of people of my generation. Um, you know, you picked up a language like BASIC and you probably had some sort of pre-PC style computer at home. <laughs> I had a TRS-80, um, which is kind of far older than most of the listeners, mm-hmm. I'm sure. And, <laughs> and its user interface was BASIC, right? Like literally not BASIC. as It, it was literally capital B, capital A, capital S, I, C. <laughs> Basic, you typed basic into it to, to interact with it, right? And to, and it had a tape deck where you, you know, literally audio cassettes that recorded in analog, your, well, wow. you know, converted digital analog to have your, your programs, right? You know, and it was very imperative, very traditional imperative language, right? Like it had line numbers and go-tos and all business, right? Mm-hmm. And then when I went to university, we learned Pascal. It wasn't really toward the end of university. Object-oriented programming became a thing, right? So, so in that late 80s. And so I spent kind of 20-odd years being in that imperative paradigm of very traditional programming language using object-oriented programming. And then I came to the web and with HTML, but then in particular with CSS, mm. um, you know, that whole declarative approach to programming, yeah. which a lot of people still deride is not really programming, right? Mm-hmm. But that idea of declaring what you want to happen rather than saying how you want it to happen was, was to me mm-hmm. probably the great revelatory kind of approach to pr- change in programming. And as someone who'd like shipped, you know, serious amounts of code on multiple platforms, mainframes, minis, you know, Macs and Windows, when I hear people talk about kind of the web as being a bit of a toy or, you know, you know CSS and HTML aren't really programming and all that kind of stuff, I was like, mm-hmm. I think people are closing themselves off to an extraordinary power of the platform. And yeah. I think at the moment we're seeing that a bit in, um, we really undervalue CSS, I think. You know, like people want to try and get CSS in JavaScript or they just want to use JavaScript in place of CSS. And and I, and I think a lot of it, you know, we, we obviously it's not, you know, if you've got a, you're an experienced React developer, you can get lots of great jobs. If you're a really, really good CSS developer, you know, you might have a lot of trouble, uh, you know, getting as many job mm. kind of, you know, offers and so on. And I think it's a real shame because I, I feel like the foundations of the web and the, the DOM and HTML and CSS are still Incredibly powerful, mm. and and I think, but and I think one of the challenges is that there are different way of thinking about development. Mm. Uh, and if you know, JavaScript is really to you know that uh, traditional imperative approach to programming. This is what I want to happen, right? So how I want it to happen. And and I think no matter how proficient people are in JavaScript, I I actually feel that they would value get tremendous value out of learning a bit more about CSS because mm. you know I don't know how many times people have been doing things with JavaScript for years and they're really good at it. And you point out there, well, hey, you know, CSS does it like this. Like, what? Like, I don't have to do these all this complex, rickety stuff with all these exceptions. It's just, mm. no, you just say, I want this to happen, right? And I think things like, you know, Flexbox and Grid and some of those really complex kind of layout tools that we now get, hopefully will wake up a lot of developers to the power and sophistication of CSS. But again, you, you have to approach it, you have to think differently. It's a declarative approach. Like, mm-hmm. you, have to, you know, um, and I think that to me, that shift in thinking was pretty profound. And uh, uh, if, if, if other people are like looking to really empower themselves around the web, that's what I would look to try, try and do to understand CSS and HTML in, in those terms. Mm, and not take it for granted because they're super powerful technologies. 
And with that, we've come to the end of our first segment. John, I'm about to throw some quick fire questions your way. Let's do this. What is the best advice about programming that you have ever received? You ain't going to need it. So it's an expression at Yagni, Y-A-G-N-I. Mm. You ain't going to need it. So if you don't need it, don't build it, right? I, I think it's a pretty good software engineering principle from way back. Mm. There's a whole bunch of them. I, I really recommend people look at software engineering going back 50, 60 years because we learn a lot over the last 50, 60 years. And I, I sometimes think we've forgotten those lessons. Yeah, and making the same mistakes over and over again. Absolutely. Each generation, right? <laughs> <laughs> John, which personal habits do you attribute to writing better code? Yeah, so I think... I think I have this strange mixture of OCD and ADHD, and neither are officially they're recognized, but I, you know, I think I have aspects of each of them. They're all continuum, right? And, and I think I can do both at times. Like I can find times where I can really drill down on the details and get the details right, which you, know, you have to when you've got eight-hour build times, and if it doesn't work, you've got to start again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like writing really good software, I think is about making those disparate connections. Even going back to that memory of that thing that I'd done nine months ago, you know, in, in, in this weird settings part of my build tools that I thought, could that in some way be related to this? So I think there's a, a combination of this sort of, you know, attention to detail. Like it's not an attention, it's a kind of a fixation on detail at times, uh-huh. coupled with the capacity to sort of roam across an area, you know, with that more less, you know, less focused um, approach. If you could recommend one book on programming, what would it be and why? Oh, that's a really, that's a really <laughs> hard one. Because <laughs> um, I guess, you know, there's these classy, classics people refer to like Muth and, and, and Dijkstra's, you know, software engineering and things like that. You know, there's the Gang of Four and the Patterns and, and, and all those sorts of things. Um, I, I don't have an answer, I'm afraid, for, for a single <laughs> one. I mean... I think some really good, like actual Rauschmeyer's books on mm. JavaScript and, and Carl Simpson's books on, on JavaScript, mm-hmm. especially up to date now, are really, really valuable. Um, you know, but maybe it's value going back to Jeff Selman's Designing with Web Standards. Um, you know, it, it's a classic and it goes back to some of the really fundamental principles of building for the web. And, mm-hmm. and while probably people won't necessarily learn specific techniques or, or anything that's maybe specifically applicable today, I think it would give an understanding of, of an approach to the web that has served us well for, you know, at least 15, if not 20 years. Um, so perhaps I'll go with that. I'll go with Jeff's Designing with Web Standards. Who in the front-end world is doing work that's really inspiring? See, you know, once upon a time, not that long ago, <laughs> uh, not even like maybe more than about 15, less than 15 years ago, you kind of knew all the people doing everything, right? Mm. So, uh, certainly the ones who published and wrote and, and, and no one spoke at conferences. That just really didn't happen until not much more than about a decade ago. And, and you know, everyone did everything. You know, ev- you had to know everything about what you did, mm. right? You probably specialized in something. Now it's so really fragmented. Um, it's really, it's hard to say. I, and one person who's really impressed me recently uh, is Jason Miller, who does Preact. Mm. So Preact is a very, very lightweight, API compatible, you know, it's like four kilobytes compressed or something ridiculous mm. version of React. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, like Jason, he, we had a fortune event coming out and speaking at our conference last year and kind of has a very thoughtful way of thinking about the technologies and, and how to communicate them as well. So, you know, Jason right now is a mixture of, of someone who, who is developing really interesting technology and also is very articulate in talking about not just his own technology, but the web platform as a whole. Mm. So he, he definitely won. I say people should check out. Now, John, imagine you wake up and you have no recollection of ever having written code. With your knowledge of the tools, books, and courses available today, how would you go about learning from scratch? 
It's probably a really bad answer, <laughs> given what I said about learning a whole new set of skills around you know, conference planning and so on. I have found the only way I happen to be able to really learn something is, is to pick a genuine real-world problem and learn a technology as I solve that problem mm. um, rather than doing little X. I, I just, it's, you know, it's maybe it's a foible of mine, you know, sitting down and working through exercises. I find it occasionally if I, want to, if I can't grok a particular thing, that might be valuable. But on the whole, what I've found to learn something with any depth is to actually think, what is a real-world thing I can build with this mm. and build it? Right. And from the very first time I learned the first language I used commercially, that's essentially, I had an idea of what I wanted to build. I thought this is the right technology, but I didn't know the technology particularly well. And I, I used, you know, once I familiarized myself with the basic, I just said, right, I'm going to build this thing. And I did. Whether or not that then that thing should be deployed on the world, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. But I, that's the approach that I, and because what I generally think you find is you stumble across well, you, you come across the common patterns that you'll need time and again. Mm. Uh, you know, like I, I remember listening to Tim Ferriss once. I, you know, I think he has his strengths and his weaknesses. Kind of has this approach to uh, this 80-20 approach to things like learning languages, mm. right? He talked about, say, learning Japanese, which he did when he was younger. And so basically, there might be a couple of hundred phrases and a few hundred words that will account for about 80% of all language you use. Mm. So rather than like, you know, going in the beginning and learning, uh, just if you acquire that core set of techniques that allows you to take the first step out into the street in Japan mm. where you're going to learn, right? Mm. And bootstrap from there. And, I, and that applies, I think, in terms of programming. You know, what do I need to do? Well, I learned the first thing I, you know, I need to do, you know, whether it's, you know, set up my build environment or, or whatever. Like at each step, I'm learning things. And surely, the, you know, my logic kind of is the first things you're going to learn, the things that you come back to time and again are the things that are going to be very common over time, right? Mm. So... That would probably be my approach if I ever had the opportunity to learn something from scratch again, which I increasingly think I'm not going to be able to do, but you know, <laughs> never know. And John, let's wrap up with your top tip on how to work smart and the best way to connect with you. So how do you work smart? Um, I, I don't know. Like I, I developed this really bad habit in high school of, of, of working to the clock in terms of like I had to do a certain number of hours of study. And, and I think... It served me really well at school, and but then when you're in university, when you're, your workloads are much higher, like I found it didn't work very smart, right? Mm. So I think it's very much the 80-20 rule. Like what, what are the 20% of things that are going to get you 80% of the results? Because you'll get a long way. And then at that point, given, you know, increasingly we realize that we've got to be iterative with everything we do, we've invested 20% of our effort to get a long way. And if we realize we haven't gone the right direction, well, we haven't spent all that 80% of the effort, right? So I think something along those lines. Mm. And how you can get me, well, probably the best thing is I'm John Alsop on Twitter or just about anywhere. So that's uh, John with an H and Alsop with two L's and two P's. So I'm on Twitter. Come say hi. Um, I'm here strange hours, um, you know, all day and night, basically. So come say hi. To everyone out there, you've been hanging with John Alsop and Larry Buerta. Head over to fixate.it where you'll find links and timestamps for everything we've been chatting about today. And John, thank you for sharing your journey with Fixate on Code. Keep pushing the limits and keep pushing great code. Thanks, mate. I had a great time.